I do invite you to open your Bible to that text. I want to thank last Sunday, Becky and I were on a mountaintop in Tennessee. No streaming capabilities up there. <laughs> and uh, so we weren't able to see the service, but we did yesterday uh, on our morning walk listen to Don Erickson's message and really enjoyed it, his exposition of the book of Habakkuk. Great text in the Old Testament, three chapters, and he thought he did a really encouraging job, really fed us, encouraged us, so I wanted to thank Brother Don for filling the pulpit so well. Next Sunday, by the way, BTW, right over here, we're going to be putting some folks underwater in obedience to Jesus. If you know Christ and have never been immersed underwater in obedience to the New Testament, we want to encourage you to be part of that service. There's still time. You just need to contact the church office, ASAP, and let us know, we, and we will be happy to uh, help put you underwater. As I say each time, we've never lost anybody yet. I even dunked a former NFL player one time. Barely got him up, but I got him up. He's a big boy. 1 Corinthians 14, we are in a series, if you're visiting today, we're glad you're here and welcome. It's always kind of weird to go to a new church and try to figure your way around and navigate and is anybody going to talk to me and what's up and how do I know where to go. And, but if you're here and you're visiting, we're glad you're here. We are walking through about a four-month series in this letter, believing that all of Scripture is inspired by the Word of God and is inspired by his Holy Spirit, who speaks through Scripture to us. And to that end, we are walking through this letter of Paul's, believing it is Scripture, and asking, what is he teaching us in this letter? We're calling this wise words to a hurting church because this was a hurting church. It was only a couple years old when Paul wrote to it, but it was a mess. He had started it, and then he had left, and then he began to receive correspondence that this church was a train wreck. And so he starts a series of correspondence with the church. I was reading N.T. Wright recently, who is a very prolific, prominent New Testament scholar in the UK, and he happened to make a comment about 1 Corinthians that I had not seen before, so I thought I'd read it. I it thought it was a great snapshot of the book. He says, quote, a glance through 1 Corinthians is like a stroll down a busy street. All of human life is there. Squabbles, lawsuits, sex, shopping, rich, poor, worship, work, wisdom, folly, politics, religion. Close quote. Good summary of the, of the letter. This weekend we come to this chapter 14. It is not an easy chapter. Uh, but it is part of a larger section. Just something to remember. Chapter 12, 13, and 14 are all part of the same section of this letter dealing with spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 talked about the gifts in general. Chapter 13, which is often called the love chapter and moved out of context, is part of the whole section talking about how the gifts need to be exercised in love. And then chapter 14 dealing specifically with the gift of tongues. So, need your attention, especially those of you up in the balcony. Hi. Good to see you all back there. And uh, this, we got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to be moving fast. So buckle your seatbelts, get your pens ready or your fingers for your notes because we're going to be moving quickly. And we're asking, what does the Bible say about tongues? We're going to approach it from two angles. Number one, 
a brief historical overview of tongues. And number two, Paul's clarification about tongues. That's how we're going to address this this morning. So first of all, I'm going to do just a brief historical overview of tongues since it is a bit of a foreign subject for some. First thing, let's define our terms because the New Testament was not written in English, as most of you are aware. It was written in Koine Greek, which was, there's two types of, basically two types of Greek in the ancient world. There was classical Greek, that's what Homer wrote in, and Plato and Aristotle. And then there was Koine Greek, or common Greek. This was the stuff of the street, kind of like today, high German, low German. This was written in low Greek, that's what it was written in. And, and the word tongues here in this chapter, or tongue, comes from a Greek word, you should know the background of it, glossa. It's a feminine noun. And that's the word, so whenever you see it here or in chapter 12, it's this Greek word, glossa. It's just just a feminine noun. Having said that, there are really two different displays or situations of glossa in our New Testament. And they really are very distinct. Uh, for example, in the book of Acts, the same word is used to describe a different kind of situation. Uh, and it's a situation on the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection, where the apostles are out preaching, presumably in their native tongue, which would have been Aramaic. But as people were listening from all different nations, tribes, and languages, as the disciples preached in Aramaic, people were hearing the gospel message in their own dialect or in their own language. So this is a little bit different than what's going on here. In other words, the miracle in Acts isn't with the speaker, it's with the listener. I'm going to go back to chapter 2 of Acts for just a moment, and I want to show you how the difference manifests itself. So Acts chapter 2, first book after our gospels, and the first eight verses is this other display of glossa, which is really distinct from what we're going to be talking about today. But it needs to be mentioned because it's the other prominent mention of glossa in the New Testament. And some people wonder how these fit together. Well, they're two distinct miracles. Acts chapter 2, around the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came... They were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. There's that word. It's in the plural there. As the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one, here's the miracle, heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in their own native language? Then it goes on to mention a number of the people groups and or languages. So the miracle here in Acts chapter 2 is not with the speaker. It is with the listener, and it has to do with gospel proclamation in a pioneer setting. Different with 1 Corinthians, if you go back to 1 Corinthians now, the miracle there is with the speaker, not the listener. 
So it's a completely different situation. The speaker, according to Paul here, is uttering syllables they generally do not understand, and hence interpretation is needed. So just because the same word glos is used in both passages does not mean it's talking about the same thing. Acts chapter 2 is a unique miracle. What's being discussed in 1 Corinthians is a spiritual gift, and interpretation is needed. The 1 Corinthians variety, by the way, is usually what people refer to when they're talking about the gift of tongues. Usually you're referring to what goes on in 1 Corinthians, not so much what's going on in Acts 2. With that, let me just give you just a very brief, emphasis on brief, historical overview of tongues in church history. We read about tongues in the book of Acts. About the last mention we hear in the apostolic age is 1 Corinthians, not much beyond that. Uh, at least in the Western church as you move out of the first century. A uh, little bit of emphasis in the Eastern Orthodox Church. You fast forward to about the 12th century, you come to a very prominent theologian, Bernard of Clairvaux, French theologian, who said he thought the gift of tongues did not exist anymore in his view. He didn't believe it. If you move ahead from that to the Reformation period, time of John Knox, Eric Zwingli, John Calvin, Martin Luther, those guys, most of them believed the gift of tongues had ceased in the first century. In fact, John Calvin wrote in his commentary on Acts chapter 10, verse 44, the gift of tongues and other such things has ceased long ago in the church. Then things get a little bit more interesting when you move to the 18th century. Uh, well, let's say 16th, 17th, and 18th century. Starting about 16th, 17th century, there were occasional outbreaks of tongues, what we would call tongues, the first Corinthian kind, among the French Protestants, French, they're called the French Huguenots in southern France. I was reading a little bit more about that last night, very interesting. And then um, among Quakers in the 17th century, even in America, there were so, some uh, occasional displays and manifestations of tongues. Uh, and then another movement, French Jansenist, it's a conservative Roman Catholic group, they have been known to speak in tongues in 17th, 18th century France. John Wesley himself was prone, not so much necessarily to speak in tongues, but he, was, he seems to have been quite sympathetic to the display of the gift. If you move into recent times, in the last 100, 150 years, there were occasional outbreaks at D.L. Moody's uh, revival meetings. Doesn't mean he necessarily endorsed it, but there were occasional outbreaks. There was prominent display of tongues in the very famous Welsh revival around 1904. Tongues played quite a prominent role at that time. It was also very prominent in the Azusa Street Revival, if you've heard of that, in Los Angeles, which is where the Pentecostal movement came from, taking its name from Acts chapter 2. And by the way, there is a difference between a charismatic and a Pentecostal. Do you know the difference? This is often a question that comes up in our new member seminar when people are trying to figure out what is the evangelical free church and are you charismatic, are you Pentecostal? And I often say, well, I often ask the question, do you know the difference? And usually the answer is no. So let me just give it to you very quickly. The difference between somebody that would be identified as a charismatic and someone identified as a Pentecostal. Charismatic is someone who believes the gift of tongues still exists, but not every Christian has it, nor is mandated to have it. It's just like all the other spiritual gifts. Some have it, some do not. 
Pentecostalism and Pentecostal theology today, on the other hand, says no, the gift of tongues is normative, mandated for every single believer, first year saved, then after salvation, subsequent to salvation, at some point, you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit a week later, a month later, a year later. When you finally get it, the baptism of the Spirit, the evidence is you will speak in tongues. So, to get from conversion to maturity, every believer is expected to go through a subsequent baptism of the Spirit and speaking in tongues. That is the normative path to Christian formation in the, in, in the Christian life. That is Pentecostalism. That is a very different thing than the charismatic movement. Interesting to note that when you look at what is going on right now in the world, probably the fastest growing segment of the church in the world, places like Asia, South America, Africa, is among Pentecostal churches. I remember uh, several years ago, I had the privilege to be on a church planting uh, interview trip, I guess what we call it. Uh, the field director for India invited several pastors to come over for the free church. And he took us on an amazing number of flights in like 10 days all over northern India, visit, talking to church planters and what, was, what they were doing on the ground. And I remember talking to one in Delhi. Now, Delhi's a city of 20 million people. I mean, Chicago's just like a little village <laughs> compared to Delhi. But he was telling me that back in 1947, when when uh, Britain and uh, India went their own ways and they, there was the partition, he said there were barely any churches at all in Delhi because it's the northern part of India, it's heavily Muslim. And he was telling me that today, and this was several years ago, he said there's well over six, seven hundred churches now all throughout Delhi and most of them, he said, are Pentecostal churches today. And some of them are growing quite rapidly. And by the way, just before we go down to Paul's clarification, we should note that every time God does something, Satan counterfeits. And so there are counterfeit displays of the gift of tongues. How do we know this? Well, because the same Holy Spirit isn't working tongues among God's people and then working tongues among those who follow the devil. And so there are displays of tongues. For example, in Hinduism, parts of Hinduism, there is speaking in tongues. Zen Buddhists have been known to speak in tongues. Uh, among voodoo, those who follow voodoo in Haiti, there are some displays of tongues, tribal religions. Uh, even the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, which is a cult, was known in its early days to, to sing in tongues. Interestingly, Brigham Young prominently spoke in tongues, who was a false prophet. So seeing that should, for us, reinforce the fact that there probably is a legitimate gift because Satan is so interested in counterfeiting it, even in false demonic religions. With that, let's turn to chapter 14. Paul's clarification about tongues. Let me make a few com comments before we dive in here. We learned in chapter 13 that Paul expected all of the spiritual gifts to continue until when? The second coming. Second coming. Now in chapter 14, we learned that some of those in Corinth were misusing the gifts and even abusing them and being self-righteous about it, using them for all the wrong reasons, especially the gift of tongues. And so now Paul rolls up his sleeves, he's going to confront them, and he offers a number of clarifications about tongues. 
and this brings up a really important point. Chapter 14 is not a, an airtight theological treatise on the gift of tongues. It leaves a lot of questions unanswered because it is a rebuke, much like chapter 13. It's a rebuke with some correction in it. And so Paul's responding to a very specific situation in chapter 14. We could hope for, but the Holy Spirit chose not to, a, 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 a display of some more specific, you know, specific things that we are left unanswered in chapter 14. There's a number of things that scholars are like, well, if he would address this and this and this and this, it would have been helpful. It's not the way the Holy Spirit did it. Paul is responding to very specific abuses, and so his comments are addressed accordingly. Therefore, there are things he does not address and simply we don't have answers for it, which apparently is fine, and that's the way the Holy Spirit decided to um, inspire it. Dr. Wayne Grudem suggests two reasons for this. We use his systematic theology around here, Grudem's systematic theology. He says there's two reasons why there's so many strings left hanging after chapter 14. One is to keep true Christians humble and protect them from intellectual pride, thinking they have everything sewn up and airtight. And number two, to remind us that God is greater than our understanding of his works and that some of his ways will still baffle us here on earth probably and in eternity. All right, let's go through some of Paul's clarifications about tongues. And the first one, actually, we have to back up to chapter 12 because he mentions tongues in chapter 12 and he tells us something very important. Clarification number one. Not all Christians are given the spiritual gift of tongues. Chapter 12, Paul could not be clearer, starting in verse 27 through verse 31. In fact, not all Christians have any given spiritual gift. They are distributed according to the Holy Spirit's decision. And no one church or no set of Christians in a church all have the same gifts. That's why it's called the body. But he's very clear here, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is part of it. God is placed in the church first of all. And now he begins to list apostles, then prophets, then teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Now he's going to ask some questions. I've mentioned this before. In English translations, these come out as rhetorical questions. They are not rhetorical questions in the original Greek. They are statements preceded by the word no. So there's no doubt how Paul intended these questions that we have or these things to be interpreted. Every one of these has a no in front of it. That's how you, you know, asked a rhetorical question, so to speak, in the New Testament. So, are all apostles? That is preceded by the word no. So it would read in Greek, no. All apostles, no. All prophets, no. Are all teachers, no. Do all work miracles, no. Do all have gifts of healing, no. Do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. So that, that, that is important right up front to say, and that is why we are not theologically a Pentecostal church. Now, I have been in churches, and I know in this church, I think there are some who have the gift of tongues, perhaps. Uh, in my last church in Michigan, I had even had a, one of my staff members um, had the gift of tongues. But it was never paraded as something that everybody should have. 
I got an email from a college student a number of years ago in our other church in Michigan, and she wrote this. Pastor Jay, I have a few questions concerning the practices of a church I'm currently attending all the way at college. It's commonplace here to speak in tongues, where she was attending, in both the worship and during the sermon. They will frequently have people come forward and the pastor and elders lay their hands on them, pray over them, also praying in tongues. This makes me really uncomfortable. I cannot understand what's being said. There is a belief that all people, once saved, having received the Holy Spirit, should speak in tongues. Is this biblical? And so I shared with her 1 Corinthians 12 and said, no. I think the gift of tongues is a legitimate gift. There's no indication exegetically that it's gone. There's no indication that all the gifts are not still operative. But having said that, very important, there is no expectation that any one person has all the gifts or that a whole group of people all have the same gift. That's just simply not there. Uh, but there, the, the gift is certainly there, and occasionally God gives it. I was talking, one of my most memorable conversations, I was talking with a converted Muslim in Asia with a couple pastors one day, and she, we asked her, how'd, how'd you come to Christ? It was very interesting. She said, she said something we've heard many times. A man appeared to me in bright, shining clothes and summoned me. This, this vision of Jesus is very common among converted Muslims and Hindus. Summoned me, and then I was healed. She had been ill, and then I spoke in tongues. Okay, doesn't fit a lot of my boxes, but hey, I'll go with it. And there she sat, a, a clear follower of Christ. So interestingly, but very important, not all are to speak in tongues. Second clarification, starting in verses 1 and following in chapter 14. Tongues without interpretation should only be done in private. And Paul is very clear about that. He says in chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies, when you see the New Testament talking about prophesies, it's somewhat of a mixture of spontaneously saying something God brought to mind, but also of preaching. Or bringing God's word to bear on a situation. So you can, it's not a direct one-to-one, -one, but think of somebody standing up and speaking God's word from scripture into a situation. Preaching, teaching. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. So there's a distinction there, even non-Pentecostal scholars usually make a distinction that, yes, there's a private aspect to this and a public aspect, but without interpretation, should only be done in private. Look at verses 18 and 19, if you have any more doubt. Paul says something that baffles a lot of non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal folk. He says, I thank God, verse 18, that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, meaning the church gathered, that's what the word church means. It's when people are together. I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Why? Because it wouldn't be understood without translation. So, tongues without interpretation should only be done in private. Third, 
tongues with interpretation is designed to build up the church when done orderly. We'll talk about that shortly. But verse 5, just keep moving down to the text. Chapter 14, verse 5, tongues with interpretation is designed to build up the church. Look at verse 5. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless, unless someone interprets so that the church can be edified or gain something from it. Uh, verse 13, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say or have someone interpret it. And then you go down to verses 26 and following, it's very clear that if tongues is going to occur when a group is together, it has to be interpreted or it's to be silenced. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three, should speak one at a time and someone, what's the last part of this, must interpret. Tongues with interpretation is designed to edify the church. Without interpretation, it's not to be done in a group. We uh, had a group of leaders several years ago in Malaysia. Some of our elders, we were doing church planting over there, trying to get a, a congregation off the ground. So we took multiple groups of leaders over several years there. In one particular trip, we, I'd become friends with a pastor of a large uh, church over there. A large Chinese church, which is not uncommon in Kuala Lumpur. But on that particular Sunday, speaking of this one, that if there's tongues, it needs to be interpreted. We were down in the front row. There was about eight, nine hundred people there. And all of a sudden, the pastor says, Okay, church, it's time for everyone to speak in tongues. Now, I don't know what was more fun, watching that or watching my leaders because I, I was looking up and down the road at some of my elders and their wives and their eyes were just... And, and, then, and then they started slaying people in the spirit and they started dropping at our feet. That was, that was also interesting. But at the, at the tongues moment, he, had, he said, everyone is to speak in tongues, go. So 800 people all began to speak in tongues. It was deafening, confusing, chaotic... And when, it was, when he finally halted the whole thing, that was it. There was nothing of interpretation, no, no, no explanation, just that's it. And then we moved on to the next thing in the service. Paul is very clear, that's not biblical. That's not something, that, that's not orderly, that's not helpful. And he says, if you're going to speak in tongues in a group, when the church is gathered, there has to be interpretation. Now, fourthly, very interesting statement, verses 20 to 22. Public tongues are also a sign for unbelievers. Now, that seems odd to say, doesn't it? How's that? Well, let's read the text and let's see what he says. Chapter 14, verses 20 to 22. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, uh, be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues, through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people even then they will not listen to me. Tongues then are a sign, here's our phrase, 
not for believers, but for unbelievers. Seems like an odd thing to say, doesn't it? But for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, for, but for believers. I want to drill down on that. Tongues are a sign for believer, not for believers, but for unbelievers. So what, what do you think he's talking about here? Well, the problem is that when non-Christians see Christians speaking in tongues, they typically see it as bizarre, and it pushes them away from Christianity. Why would Paul then write this? One of the most helpful comments I came across was the extremely brilliant New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, who said this about these verses. Tongues are a sign for unbelievers. But if you examine how the Scripture describes the relationship between unbelievers and tongues, you'll discover that they constitute a negative sign for unbelievers. They are a sign of God's commitment to bring judgment on them. You say, well, why is that? Well, notice, go back up now, verse 21. Paul quotes from two passages. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 28 and Isaiah 28. The context in Isaiah is that of the Assyrian language. Assyrian language. Meaning what? Well, in Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28 was issued in 8th century B.C. And it was a warning from the prophet Isaiah about a coming invasion of the Assyrian Empire on Israel for their disobedience. And the point is this. When they heard the foreign language coming, they didn't speak Assyrian, but when they heard the foreign language, it was a sign that God's judgment was coming. That's the context Paul's quoting here. The reason is that God had spoken clearly through the prophets, through the Torah, through the Hebrew Scriptures, the people understood that language, but when they heard a foreign language, it was a sign of judgment. That's what Paul is borrowing here by quoting Deuteronomy 28. In Isaiah 28. So what's his point? His point is that the principle is this. Clear speech was a sign of God's blessing to his people. Unclear speech was a sign of judgment. That's why Paul borrows from those two Old Testament texts. All right. Number five. Now this one is not directly about tongues, but it's right here in the middle of the text. There's a reason for it. So we're going to dive in. Paul says, women are not permitted to teach or preach in corporate worship. He addresses a separate issue here because, remember, you've got to step back and ask, well, why, why would he put this in here right here? Well, because he's talking about the worship service as a whole. And in their worship services, there was chaos. And so Paul is actually addressing several things all in one bunch. Like I said, this is not a specific treatise just on tongues tying up all the loose ends. Paul is addressing very specific problems in their congregation. And one of them was women who were preaching and or teaching. Another one of them was tongues out of control and disorder. There was all kinds of stuff going on here, but this was one of the issues. So, starting in verse 34, Paul addresses this particular issue by saying, women are not permitted to teach and preach in corporate worship. Now, to our ears as Americans, that just sounds heretical. But, let's look at what Paul says. Women should remain silent in the churches. So it's clear this isn't just for that congregation. Paul's talking about a norm from Scripture. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. 
they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, Paul has already addressed male headship back in chapter 11. So if, you fi- if we find this offensive, he's already talked about this. I made more comments about it back then, but he talked about male headship in the home and also in the church. And we learned back in that sermon, that Paul and Jesus had a very high view of women, higher than anything at that time in the Greco-Roman culture, far beyond anything the Greeks held or the Romans held. In fact, Paul saw and mentions many women serving throughout the church, and Paul's very clear that women should be discipling and teaching other women. But he was equally clear in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and in 1 Timothy 2, that women are not to preach and exercise authority when men are present. And we asked why, we discovered in that sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to it, it's all rooted back in Genesis. That's his point. It's how God set up creation, there are lines of authority, the husband's under Christ, the wife's under the husband, there are authority lines. Now today, again, in an egalitarian secular culture like America, this just sounds nutso, cuckoo bananas. But it's not cuckoo bananas. This is the way God set up the universe. Men are to lead in love. Gentlemen, we are to lead in our marriages in love. And women and wives are to submit in love. That's God's design. If you don't like it, I didn't write it. I'm just telling you what the text says. But it's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, about the local church, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 2. That has no bearing on what Paul thought of women. Paul saw women and men as completely equal. We'd say in philosophy terms, ontologically equal in God's sight, completely equal. But there still is the operation of authority in a marriage and in a local church. All right, two more and we're going to land this plane. Okay, two more and we'll land the plane. Sixthly, we are not to forbid people speaking in tongues. Paul's very clear about that. Verses 39 and 40. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and don't forbid, do not forbid speaking in tongues. So there, very clearly, He expected the gift to exist, at least in some congregations, ongoing. And seventh, and I I put this one at the end, but it also comes at the end, I think on purpose, everything that is done in a worship service must be done orderly. That doesn't mean there can't be excitement and enthusiasm and energy. It's talking about chaos reigning. There has to be structure and order because we are worshiping the living God. I gave a sermon this last year on the book of Leviticus. We did a sermon series in the, in the winter. And for the first six Sundays of 2021, I did one sermon each Sunday on Genesis, then Exodus, then Leviticus, then Numbers, then Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Because they're the foundation of our Bible. But when I got to Leviticus, and we looked at chapter 10 in particular, where God struck two careless perverted priest dead on the spot, I made the comment that God is a lot more fussy about worship than we are. 
We're in the presence of the living God, especially when we're gathered as a church family. And so Paul is here reminding us of that, that whatever is done, tongues or no tongues, music, preaching, whatever, it's to be done in a fitting and orderly way. That's verse 40. All right, what's our summons this morning? We've gone through a lot of material. You might need to listen to this again. Every message is archived, by the way, online. But this is a lot to go through. But what, what's the summons coming out of this? Let's talk about two things. I gave the similar summons a couple weeks ago on chapter 12. So I'm going to give basically the same summons. Number one, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, I know not everyone here does, but I know a lot of us do. If you have repented of your sin, embraced the cross, surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord, do you know what your spiritual gift is? And generally, there's more than one. And I said a couple weeks ago, by the way, the best way to figure out your gift is not taking a gift test online. Okay, that's... Whenever I ask this in new member seminars, uh, people automatically default to, well, I took a test and it's... That's a, I've never taken a spiritual gifts test. I'm not real fond of them. They're okay to confirm maybe. But the best way to know your gift is using different gifts and trying them and seeing if, A, you enjoy it, if you're effective at it, and if other people affirm you. So do you know what your spiritual gifts are? And are you evangelizing your children and helping them identify their spiritual gifts? See, our kids are lost when they're born. They're on their way to hell, and we need to evangelize them and help lead them to saving faith. But one of the things of discipleship then becomes helping them identify their spiritual gifts and start serving. And so that is clearly a summons that comes out of chapter 12, 13, and 14 here. And then secondly, if you do know your spiritual gifts, last question, are you using them? One of my favorite phrases is, the church is not designed for floppers, shoppers, and droppers. Okay. Going somewhere on a Sunday morning and just watching a worship service and then leaving and not engaging is not New Testament Christianity. I'm not sure what exactly it is. If you're just doing it week after week, month after month, year after year, it's unbiblical. I'm glad that people come, but being part of an ecclesia, ecclesia of a church family means getting involved building relationships, serving, serving. God gave the gifts so that we would serve, not just sit once a week and leave. So the second question is, are you a flopper, shopper, dropper, or are you actively engaged somewhere? We have lots of opportunities. There's benefits of a smaller church and a medium-sized church and a larger church. One of the benefits of a larger congregation is there's lots of places to serve. I can think of places like our safety team, our ushering team, our greeting team, Sunday school, both children and our adults, or Awana. We have a thriving Awana ministry, a prayer ministry. We have people that meet before the service to pray. Community groups. We're always looking for qualified community group leaders. It's all sorts of areas to get plugged in. Are you using your spiritual gifts as God intended? With that... We are going to go to the Lord's table this morning, which takes us back to chapter 11. Every few weeks, we do practice the sacrament of communion and the Lord's Supper. Today, we're going to do that. Let me put a slide up on the screen. 
because we always have people visiting and we're delighted if you're visiting with us and this is not just for those of us who are members here however the Bible does have qualifications for those who participate in the Lord's table communion what are they <clears throat> well number one that you are born again this is not a time for toddlers and infants it's a time for those who know Christ and have repented and trusted Jesus as Savior secondly that you understand the local church and are part of one and recognize it as the body of Christ I mean all of Paul's letters are written except for Philemon to local churches and congregations and thirdly you're walking in obedience to the best of your knowledge not perfection but as far as you know there is no unconfessed sin that you're hiding or holding back on there's not a secret life of pornography or lying to your mom and dad or stealing or embezzling or you're abusing somebody or something where you think by the way you're not hiding it from God you will face him if you don't repent but somewhere where you think you are hiding a backstage life of sin Paul's very clear that to the best of our knowledge we need to have confessed our sin and be in fellowship with him as a believer if we're going to participate in this so I'm going to give it I'm going to read here just a couple verses out of 1 Corinthians 11 we're going to have a short time of confession and then I hope you picked up your um, cup coming in. There's a wafer on top of it. I'll explain that in a second. We're still doing that uh, coming out of COVID. But here's Paul's instructions just a couple chapters back in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And these are the words he said. This is my body, which is for you. Do it to remember me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it to remember me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink this cup, he says you're doing something. What is it you're doing? You're preaching. You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So then, Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and what Paul means by that we've seen is there's unconfessed sin we're aware of in our life, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone then ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. That's why taking communion without self-examination is, is not a biblical thing. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, that means without paying attention to the fact that they're part of a church family, will eat and drink judgment on themselves. He said that is why so many among you are weak and sick and some have fallen asleep, fallen asleep being a euphemism for they're dead. God struck them dead. So with that, let's take time to make sure we are clean before the Lord, that we know Christ is Savior. If you don't and are not, we would ask that you would abstain today and hopefully then be able to join us next time. So with that, let's go to a time of confession.